Hello, and welcome to Humanities Matter, brought to you by Brill. I'm Lee Chung Greco, and this week we'll be looking at key issues in the field of humanities. Today we're speaking with Professor D.W. Livingstone. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto. His book is Professional Power and Skill Use in the Knowledge Economy. Professor Livingstone, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thank you. So first of all, tell us why are classes and occupations so often conflated? Uh, If you ask most people what they do, uh, what kind of work they do, they will respond uh, typically, I'm a plumber, I'm an engineer. Uh, If you ask them what economic class they're in, they'll typically respond uh, in terms of the income and wealth level they have, which in most cases is quite closely associated with the occupation that they do. Um, This combination or conflation is um, compounded by most researchers who talk fairly exclusively exclusively about occupational classes. Um, And unfortunately, this... uh, denies one of the basic realities of employment uh, uh, relations and employment classes. There are essentially three classes, in my view. Uh, There are those who own the means of production. Uh, There are those who are hired uh, by those owners uh, to work for them. And there are, thirdly, the uh, managerial uh, people in between who are hired and delegated by the owners uh, to control and coordinate the non-managerial employees. Uh, Proviso, there are also owners who are self-employed. This conflation is compounded uh, when we begin to talk about professions because in the research to date, almost all of it talks about professionals as a single occupational class, which denies the reality of the employment relations that are involved for professionals, as well as for uh, the labor force in general. So in brief, I would argue, and we develop in systematic detail in this book, uh, distance of four uh, occupational classes. There are owners who work for themselves, self-employed professionals, uh, for example, and professional owners uh, who uh, have managed to establish their own businesses and hire others. Uh, typically fairly small businesses for professionals, but sometimes fairly large. There are uh, people who are trained in professions who ultimately become uh, owners of transnational corporations. I won't mention any names, but uh, you can think of them yourself. Um, And uh, basically, uh, we have professional employees, non-managerial professional employees, who are the the bulk of uh, professionals in most occupational areas. And then we have a third group, uh, professionals who become managers. And just briefly, there is a notion of professional managerial class, which in my view is the most confused (laughs) class concept ever created. Uh, We do not have a professional managerial class. We have many non-managerial professional employees in many, in most professional and most occupational areas of professions, and we have a relatively small number of professionals 
who ascend to managerial roles and forget their professional skill set in many cases. But those are the basic uh, um, class positions that we need to recognize in doing uh, analysis of professions. That is to say, self-employed professionals, professional employers, uh, professional who become managers, and the bulk in most uh, professions who are non-managerial employees. And I'm afraid to say that most of the research literature on professions completely ignores these employment classes. And that hopefully is one of the contributions of our book to begin discussion and analysis of professional classes in advanced capitalist societies. I think that's a really interesting way to break down that power structure. Um, I'm curious, can you talk a little bit more about why you think uh, that class structure is ignored? Um, I I don't know how it is in Canada exactly, but um, I know in the U.S. that there is sometimes a reticence to talk about class. Um, we'll talk about race here, um, but we don't like talking about money and we definitely don't like acknowledging which class uh, we're actually working in. Um, yes, it's, uh, that's a very long story, <laughs> but I should say uh, if we talk about uh, uh, owners, the owner class, um, we can distinguish uh, small employers, large employers, and corporate capitalists. And corporate capitalists are a very tiny fraction of the class structure, but very dominant uh, with their allies in uh, creating images of power um, and uh, uh, notions of, of equity and democracy, which in, in many respects are fallacious because we have an increasingly inequitable um, economy and class structure, which is dominated by corporate capitalists, uh, and increasingly even their allies amongst the manager or managers and smaller employers are becoming increasingly uh, disabused of uh, the power concentration within a very, very small, very, very rich part of the, uh, of the society. Um, and unfortunately, uh, most people, most of the time, uh, don't think about it, uh, but ultimately it's dominating our lives in increasing and increasingly unfortunate discriminatory ways. So maybe you can dig into that a little bit more with my next question. How has the class structure of employment changed with the onset of this global digital age? Uh, first, I would say that uh, the notion of a global digital age um, uh, has certain reality over the last uh, 30 years in particular because uh, uh, the use of computers has gone from a very small minority within the workforce and to virtually everybody uh, being engaged in some kind, kind of computerization in their work now. At the same time, uh, job security uh, has also decreased profoundly for most people, uh, non-managerial employees in particular, lower managerial groups, uh, the notion of uh, more precarious and less benefited work has become more pervasive. Uh, but there is one continuity I should register, and that is the uh, proportion in the, in the class structure, which is uh, um, made up of those who are owners. 
uh, in most advanced capitalist societies, Canada, the U.S., and others, uh, it's roughly around 15% of the labor force, employed labor force, who have uh, any kind of ownership uh, position. Um, most of them small employers, uh, some large employers, and again, a tiny fraction of corporate capitalists. But consistently through all of these countries, uh, they are a very small proportion and consistently around 15% of the total employed uh, labor force. The other 85% uh, in uh, non-managerial positions and uh, managerial. But the two things that have changed most significantly in that regard, in addition to the decline of industrial workers over this period, have been the increase of professional uh, occupations and in particular non-managerial uh, non professional employees. And secondly, a growth of middle managers, uh, typically to manage the uh, professional uh, employees um, and industrial and service workers as well in various kinds of accounting and surveillance functions. So those are the most significant changes that have occurred, not in ownership structure um, <clears throat> or proportion, but in the growing number of uh, workers who have specialized uh, knowledge and we generally characterize now as professional employees. That is a major shift over the last uh, 30 years. So I'm curious, I'm sure that uh, the number of freelancers has grown in the digital age, uh, but it seems that those people can be neatly put into one class. Um, do you have a sense of where they usually land in terms of, um, you know, the amount of money that they make or, or which class um, they would normally fit in? Uh, there's not much normal about them, Leah. Uh, they don't <laughs> land anywhere. Uh, they keep moving. Uh, some people call them the precariat, but uh, I've referred initially to one of the basic classes as being self-employed um, um, and in particular self-employed professionals. Um, increasingly, people who are in that self-employed condition are subcontracting uh, with larger corporations on relatively short-term, sometimes fairly rich, but sometimes fairly impoverished contracts. And ultimately, that subcontracting status makes them virtually indistinguishable from non-managerial hired employees uh, who are, as I said at the outset, experiencing increasingly precarious working conditions and diminishing benefits. So the notion that freelancers have some kind of a... Uh, um, a, uh, an optimistic, uh, freer future, uh, I think is a fallacy of composition. We see some examples of people who have highly specialized skills for a particular period of time uh, who can become successful earners in a, in a subcontract. But very few of these are secure positions uh, uh, which guarantee uh, continuing self-employment but promise a prospect of increasing uh, dependence on corporate subcontracting. So prior general research has suggested that professional occupations requiring specialized skills have been growing 
but skill underutilization has also been increasing generally in the labor force of advanced capitalist societies. So given that prior work, what's the objective of your research here? Well, much of my prior research, I should say, as well as a number of other scholars, uh, has documented the growth of underemployment in advanced capitalist societies generally. Over the last 30 years, uh, the proportion of uh, those in the labor force who are overqualified for their jobs, either in terms of their entry qualifications or their performance requirements, has increased substantially. Up until recently, it's been widely presumed that professionals were largely immune from this condition because they had such long training periods and they were relatively scarce in terms of uh, uh, the supply and demand uh, for that kind of uh, highly specialized job. Uh, We have documented uh, in this book uh, the extent to which professional professional workers and non-managerial professional employees in particular have been increasingly uh, subject to underemployment. The more people who've uh, received training at highly specialized levels, the more enter the labor force and the less capable the existing job structure has been to absorb or to accommodate their skill levels. And the solution to that has been under human capital theory to advise more people to get more training on the notion that uh, education will will, uh, bring economic salvation. It hasn't worked out that way in the last uh, generation. Um, And uh, our research documents the the rather pervasive condition of uh, increasing underemployment for highly qualified workers generally and non-managerial professional employees in particular. Uh, Some uh, who are uh, owners, professional owners, uh, and upper managers have been largely immune from this condition because of their relative power in the employment uh, condition, uh, the, the, the work relations, but others have been increasingly subject to it. So that has been, uh, I think, a contribution of of this book to document that condition to uh, a a large extent um, and to show how, uh, with increasing underemployment, there has also been decreasing job control in terms of decision-making power and discretion over technical design for an increasing part of the uh, professional uh, occupation group. Uh, who have previously been expected to be able to utilize most of the skills most efficiently to uh, lead us to the knowledge economy uh, and uh, full utilization of the knowledge of, of all specialized workers. It has not happened. Uh, and it's an increasing concern for anybody who's uh, really uh, uh, committed to seeing uh, the utilization and equal opportunity for, for all people who have any talent at all. Um, so digging into some of these specific professions that you focus on, uh, why did you choose to focus on engineers and nurses in your study? And what did you find out about those professions? Well, we chose um, engineers and nurses for several reasons. Uh, one, they're two of the major professions which are uh, regarded as strategic for the development of the knowledge economy. 
we chose these two partly because they're quite different in several ways. First, uh, nurses are predominantly female. Uh, engineers are predominantly male, 80% plus in both cases. Um, the uh, nurses are public sector predominantly. Engineers are predominantly private sector. Um, they had anticipated uh, professional class structure differences with fairly large proportion of engineers, uh, engineers uh, becoming managerial and very few nurses, mostly dominated by physicians, et cetera. Um, so uh, we conducted uh, among the first representative samples of, of uh, large numbers of uh, nurses and engineers uh, in association with uh, their professional associations. Um, these studies, by the way, were conducted by Tracy Adams, one of the leading sociologists of professions in Canada, uh, did the study of nurses, and Peter Sawchuk and Edward Cruz uh, did the study of, of nurses. Um, and in both cases, we did uh, uh, surveys of large uh, representative samples. We did oral histories as background to, to do, uh, start to, uh, the process. Uh, we did documentary histories, and we um, also did in-depth interviews uh, with them. Um, and so I, I think there's an extensive uh, profiling of both of these professions, which, as I say, are largely uh, agreed to be amongst the most strategic professions. Um, but uh, what we found in both cases was that uh, uh, while there were class structure differences along the lines I've already alluded to, um, the non-managerial employees in both cases who were um, about half of, of the engineers and uh, the vast majority of nurses were also experiencing the same kind of challenges in terms of diminishing job control and uh, organizational decision-making and technical design uh, issues uh, and increasing underemployment. Uh, so in that sense, they, they both are sharing troublesome characteristics of most uh, uh, general uh, professional classes in the current period, which uh, should be particularly disturbing to any who've uh, seen uh, the uh, nurses and engineers and other highly specialized uh, professional uh, employees as the hope for the future. They are increasingly being challenged in a variety of ways that we document in the book. Uh, and which I hope further researchers are going to pay much more attention to than they have in the past. Again, very fascinating and fresh way to look at this class structure here. Uh, Professor D.W. Livingstone, his book is Professional Power and Skill Use in the Knowledge Economy, a Class Analysis. Professor Livingstone, thanks again for sitting down with us. Thank you. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.